The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. Children, I want you to see if you can, I want you to call this out. I'm going to give you the holiday clue and you have, to, you have to call out what holiday this is. And if you need a little help from your parents, you can get that. But this is really not, this is pretty easy, okay? So I'm going to give you the clue and you have to say what holiday. You ready? Here's the clue. Turkey. Very good. You guys are smart. All right. Frasier fir tree in the living room. Christmas. Pumpkin. Halloween. Fireworks. All right, this is pretty easy. Now, if I say uh, water pool ceremony and lights and festival of lights, what would you say? You'd be kind of stumped. But if you were a good Jew and you had experienced, they had three big holidays, three big feasts. It was the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Passover. Do you know which one was the biggest? Not Passover. The biggest of the three big ones was the Harvest Feast. And that would have been the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And the kids really liked that one because you got to go camping for a whole week. It was an eight-day festival, and it was in the fall, late fall, and every Jewish male within 20 miles of Jerusalem was required to be in attendance. This was the most attended feast, and here's, how, here's what, the, what the shelters look like. Everybody camped, they made temporary shelters, and the walls had to be thin enough so that the lights could shine through because this was the Festival of Lights. So the Festival of Lights is every, you have a torch ceremony and big lights going on, and it's, it's like their Christmas lights was the... What, this is all going somewhere because Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. This would be like 9.29 on July 4th. What happens at 9.15 on July 4th p.m.? What happens at 9.15? Fireworks. Thank you. And how long does a typical ceremony last for? A 13 minutes. So you can time it. If you get more than 13, you've got a really good show, okay? But at nine, imagine at 9.29... Somebody yells out, I'm the fireworks of the world. I mean, you would think, okay, this person must think they're pretty special. This is what Jesus is going to do at this feast, is he's going to declare, I'm living water, right? Because there was a big water ceremony every day, and it was all leading back to when Jesus had delivered them in the wilderness, and he, they had struck the rock. And what happened when they struck the rock and they were all dying of thirst? What happened? Water came out. And then they had a big problem. It was, they had the Israelites, or they're, you know, they're leaving, and God sends them a, an, an interesting route. He doesn't just deliver them straight across the Red Sea, but he leads them by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of light at night to guide them. And so what they were celebrating at this feast was not only the, the, the ingathering of the harvest and being thankful for that, but they were remembering God's provision in the wilderness to provide water 
and manna and also light. He was this pillar of cloud and pillar of light. And so in John chapter 6, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I'm greater than the manna. In chapter 7, he says, I'm living water. Right after they get done with the ceremony of the big ending of the, of the feast, they would have this big ceremony. And this is, how, this is what they would do. The priest would lead the people in procession. He would go down to the pool of Siloam, chanting some psalms. They were waving their, their fruit. And the priest would dip his pitcher and scoop up the water from the pool of Siloam. Everybody would recite together, Isaiah 12, 3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Then they would march back to the temple, going through the water gate to the blast of the priest's trumpets. The priest would then circle the altar once, assemble with accompanying priests to the platform, and pour the water from a pitcher along with wine from another pitcher onto the altar. And it was right around that time that Jesus said on the last day of the feast, Jesus says, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He's saying, I'm the fulfillment. What you struck in the wilderness, the Bible tells us when you struck the rock, the rock was Christ, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10. And so there was another thing that happened. Because what I want you to see is, before I even read our, our big verse today, which is, I'm the light of the world, I want you to see the context. So if you look back at chapter 7 of John, we're told at the very beginning of chapter 7 that the Feast of Booths was at hand. And that Jesus goes to the feast at the middle of the feast, verse 14, it says, at the middle of the feast, Jesus went into the temple. And in verse 28, he says that he taught in the temple. And then chapter 8, verses 1 to 11, that's an add-on, not really in the Gospel of John. Move that aside. Jesus, the woman caught in adultery, that's not there in most of the original manuscripts, or almost all of them. So you've got to move that out. And then you see that Jesus is again speaking. He's still in the temple. He's still in the temple all the way through chapter 8, the very end of chapter 8. The last thing it says is that he went out of the temple. So the, this whole thing is at the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Lights, and Jesus says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So I'm trying to give you the context. I'm going to give you the claim, the crisis, and the condition. So you already got most of the context. Is The context is this festival, both of the, the water, but also of the lights. And here's how the lights thing worked. Each day on subsequent nights, there would be four great candelabras in the temple area, apparently in the court of the women, which was, there was like the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women, and then the, the inner parts were only the, the males. And I don't know why it was set up that way, but I'm just telling you how, that's how it was set up, okay? There were four great candelabras, each with four golden bowls filled with oil. They'd be lit in the temple, and it would illuminate the whole temple and on into the surrounding area and city. Think there's no electricity back then. And this was a huge lighting ceremony. And Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. And so what Jesus is doing when he claims to be the light of the world is he's saying the whole Feast of Tabernacles, this whole feast of what you were thankful for, for God's provision in the wilderness, that was me. 
I was the living water. I provided the water back then, and I was the pillar of cloud, and I was the pillar of fire, and I'm the one who led the people of Israel out, and I'm the one who led them into the promised land. And, that's, and, and Jude even just says it was Christ. If you read the little gospel of Jesus, only one chapter, but it says that it was Christ who delivered them. And Jesus is saying it was me. And so Jesus is making a pretty audacious claim here. And um, like I said, this would be like us, at, you know, somebody declaring at 929 at night on July 4th that they're the fireworks of the world. I mean, that you, it would be pretty easy for you to connect the dots, okay? Now, what's interesting if you look at your reflection quotes in the bulletin, which I don't even have my, my bulletin with me, but very interestingly, just, you know, you're reading along in Psalm 36, and it's in your reflection quote. And this is what the Bible says in it. And, it, and it's contrasting all of the depravity of man and the sinfulness of man, the first four verses of Psalm 36. And then it highlights God's grace, his steadfast love. And he says in verse 8 and verse 9 that how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. I just want you to look at those verses again and think of what John is doing in the Gospel of John as Jesus is declaring these things. I'm the bread of life. They feast on the abundance of your house. They drink from the river of your delights. And Jesus says, come to me, and out of you will flow living waters. He, he claims to be the river of our delights. And then he claims to be the light of the world. That in your light do we see light. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the scriptures. But certainly, he's the fulfillment of Psalm 36. And so this claim to deity that Jesus is saying is, you know, there are seven wonderful I am statements in the Gospel of John, but in, even in this chapter, there are several I am statements. So when he says, I'm the light of the world, I mean, you think about who claims to be light. If you notice the passage that we read this morning from Isaiah 60, twice it refers to God as the everlasting light. And it's this idea that someday in the new heavens and new earth, we're told in Revelation, when you get to the fulfillment of this and the, the predictions in Isaiah 60, that someday you're not even going to need, you're not going to need a moon, you're not going to need moonlight, and you're not going to need sunlight. There's not going to be a moon and there's not going to be a sun. God himself will be their light. He's the everlasting light. And we just sang about it in Little Town of Bethlehem. And the everlasting light is this, it says there, there's no night and that God is their light. But you know, and, and this, for now, I mean, when John saw the light in Revelation 1, he falls on his face as though dead. And, you know, these, it's so bright, it's just blinding John. And he thinks he's going to die. And God says, do not be afraid. Or Jesus does. So Jesus is claiming to be God. And the interesting, you know, as you think through one of the songs we sang this morning was, uh, lo, how a rose are blooming. And there's a couple that says, you know, Isaiah did foretell it a couple times and speaking of this, this idea that he's the fulfillment of prophecy. But in Isaiah 9, it says, in the midst of this gloom, in the midst of this anguish, anguish Galilee was to the north 
And Galilee was where the invasions always took place, as the northern invaders would always come down from the north, and it really stunk to live there. It was, man, it is bad news, because it hits us first, and here they come, and we're, we're going to be stuck again, and we're going to be in bondage. And so, and it, all of a sudden you get to Isaiah 9, it's like, you know, and they're in the midst of dealing with, they're getting ready to be conquered by the Assyrians and be done away with again. And God's saying, don't worry, for unto us a son is, is given, and unto us a, you know, a child is born, and, and don't worry, a little baby's coming. All your problems will be solved. And it says there's going to be one who's going to be a wonderful counselor, mighty God, you know, everlasting father, prince of peace. And the idea is that there's a, there, the, in, the people have seen, who've been in darkness have seen a great light. And then when you get to Isaiah 42 and 49, these servant songs, they're both a prophecy about one who's going to come, who's going to be a light to the nations. So this Messiah will be light. And the idea is in contrast to darkness. And the darkness is both kind of the, both the gloom of despair. It's a gloom from a lack of revelation, a lack of knowledge of who God is. But then the darkness we also see is inside us. It's a moral problem and the darkness of, of groping along the wall. And then we choose darkness and we do deeds of darkness. And then we're told that, that the devil himself is the one of darkness. And it's the, he's the prince of darkness. And, and where people will ultimately go will be cast out into, into, into outer darkness. And so darkness is a really scary prevailing thought. And we need this light to come in in the midst of the darkness. And Jesus comes along and says, I'm the light of the world. But just check out real quickly a couple of the other I am statements that he just, it, throughout this chapter. Chapter 8, verse 24 23 says, you are from below, I'm from above. You're of this world, I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your, your sins for unless you believe that I am, that he is supplied, unless you believe that I am ego me. That's the Greek for I am. A reference all the way back to Exodus 3 when God shows up to Moses at the burning bush and he says, I am that I am. And Jesus says, unless you believe that I am, you will indeed die in your sins. So you have to believe that that's Jesus. And then in verse 28, Jesus says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Once again, that he is supplied. You will know that I am and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just as the Father taught me. When the Son is lifted up, when he dies on the cross, he's lifted up. And then you'll know. And then... They're, you know, they're saying, man, Jesus, you know, who are you? He's saying they're, they're slaves of sin, and they're saying we've never been slaves of anyone. And Jesus tells them that um, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin, John eight thirty four, and you need to be set free. And if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And then he begins to tell them about Abraham, and Abraham's your father, and you're doing the will of Abraham. And Abraham was a murderer from the beginning. And then they get to the culmination question, who do you make yourself out to be, Jesus? Like, who do you make yourself out to be? They don't believe him. 54 or 53. And then he says, your father, he says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old. And you've seen Abraham? 
And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. You see, Jesus' claim to be the light of the world is, he, you know, the Lord is my light and my salvation. In your light, we see light. He is God. And he's claiming that in this chapter over and over again. If you don't believe that I am, then you will indeed die in your sins. He's the only one who can save you from your sins. Augustine, early church father, said, I never heard a philosopher say, come to me, you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. <laughs> it's an interesting statement. I've never heard a philosopher say that. And his point is, his philosophers are always pointing to somebody else. You see, Tim Keller says he's, you know, he's saying there's no other prophet, there's no other faith, there's no other philosophy, nobody else. You know, it, Jesus is, is not the moon. He's the sun. Everybody else reflects his glory. They point to the, you know, their pointer is pointing to the point, but he's coming along saying, I'm the point, I'm the light of the world. And Jesus doesn't say, you know, I, I, I know the light, I, I am a light, you can, you know, I am the light of the world. It's a really audacious claim that he is the servant of Isaiah 42 and 49. He is the light prophesied in Isaiah 9. He is the fulfillment. But it's right in the midst of a context. That's the claim, but the crisis is an implicit assumption. The implicit assumption is, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. What's the crisis? What's the implicit assumption? We're in darkness and we need light. I got a good friend of mine who's the CEO of a pretty big company and it, it's traded on the NASDAQ and he was in an interview, he was just telling me what he asked a guy in an interview. So here is a guy interviewing to be compliance officer of this big company. And so he asked him, he said, I got, got a question for you. Just basically, here's the CEO asking you, do you believe that man is basically good or bad? And the guy fumbles around. He said, I, I think man is basically good. And so then my friend says, well, then why do you want to be a compliance officer? <laughs> why are you here for this interview? <laughs> Because man is basically bad. He, we need compliance officers to hold people accountable. You see? The idea is that Jesus is saying he is light because we are darkness. And so, and what we see in, in throughout the scriptures is where is all this leading? It's all leading. I mean, there was a guy named William Temple, Archbishop of Canterbury. And he once said, why would anyone want to crucify the Christ of liberal Protestant, Protestantism has always been a mystery to him. Because the, the, the Christ of, of liberalism isn't a Christ that saves. He isn't a Christ that does miracles. He isn't a Christ that people hate. But the, the, the scariest thing about darkness is when people had a chance to actually deal with God in the flesh, what did they do? They screamed their hearts out for Barabbas. And then they screamed their hearts out, crucify him. And they crucified the Lord of glory. Have you ever sinned big enough to know that you really need a Savior? I mean, seriously. Have you, have you gotten to a point? I mean, and I, I'm not saying that to go sin some big sin, sins. 
But there come certain times in our lives where we're like, it's scary the things that can come out of our hearts. And Jesus comes to save us from our sin. One of the big reasons that we know we have this sin problem is, look at the title of the sermon. The title of the sermon is just, where are you going? You see, the person who's in darkness never knows they're in darkness. No way. They don't know they're in darkness. They think they're just walking along in the light. But if you ask them where they're going, if they're honest with you, they could tell you where they're going today, they could tell you where they're going this week and this year, but they have no idea where they're going. Five years, 50 years, 500 years, 500,000 years, 500 million years. Where are you going? That's the question. When I was in high school, I used to, I would, you know, I, I quote a lot of old rock music because that's what I just love to listen to. But I, I was really into Jackson Brown for a time. And he has this classic song I'm sure some of you have heard called Running on Empty. And uh, it's a fun little one. It's just D and A and E. And that's pretty much the whole song. But anyway, he, the song begins like this. Looking out at the road, rushing under my wheels. Looking back at the years gone by like so many summer fields. He says, 65, I was 17, running up 101. I don't know where I'm running now. I'm just running on. Running empty, running blind. Running on, but I'm running behind. Well, you go through the song, and five times he tells you what he doesn't know. Here they are. He just told you one of them. Then he says, I don't know where I'm running now. I'm just running on. Then he says, I don't know when that road turned into the road I'm on. Then later in the song, he says, I don't know about anyone but me. And then he says, I don't know how to tell you all just how crazy this life feels. I'm running on empty. I'm running blind. And then lastly, he says, you know, I don't even know what I'm hoping to find. I'm just running blind. I'm running behind, running into the sun, running behind. You see, the road the righteous travel is like the first light of dawn, Shining ever brighter to the full light of day, that's Proverbs 4.18, but 4.19 is the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They don't know over what they stumble. Which road are you on? Are you on the road that's running on empty, running blind? You're not, I don't even know what I'm hoping to find. And as we chase the things of this world, they begin to reveal themselves. Malcolm Muggridge was a guy from England, and he moved, after graduating from Cambridge, this is in the 1900s, probably 1970s or something like that, he moved to India to teach English. And in his early 20s, he strolled down to a nearby river and bathing in the rivers, which was common in India, it was sunset, and gliding through the trees and blanketing on the ripples, his he, he talks about his eyes spotting the silhouette of women bathing on the other side. And this one woman he thought was beautiful, and his heart began to pound with lust. And he lunged into the water, and he swam across the river. And when he got to the other side, he emerged face to face with this naked woman, and before him was a wrinkled woman, her feet deformed, toothless, and racked with leprosy. Her eyes, sockets eroded, her fingers stumpy. 
He threw himself back into the water with a fright. And this is what he, he wrote about. He said what scared him the most was not this woman that he saw, but it was holding up a mirror to his own soul. And that he said, what was more shocking than her leprosy was the condition of his own heart, dark with appetites, overpowering his weak will. The diseases of the body are not merely as hideous and grotesque as the diseases of the soul. He was dark, and his darkness was revealed. David Pallison says, every time you get angry, you make your values and point of view explicit. What's been implicit and quiet and hidden, when you get angry... You have declared to everybody what really is your worldview, your values, and your point of view. Is it Jesus? Paul Tripp, in his, in his book on marriage, what did you expect? This is what he says. He says he sees people all the time. They, 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 they talk about how they're not blind or they're not in darkness, and yet they are. He says, people will say, I'm not snoring but you're, you're asleep. How would you know? How could you make an accurate a judgment? You wake up, I'm not snoring. Well, what do you mean? Or my breath smells fine, but you're not downwind of the exhale. So how would you know? And Tripp just says, I have been amazed to watch an angry husband angrily declare that he's not angry. I've been surprised to see a controlling husband and wife control a conversation in order to work or convince me that they're not controlling. I've watched a bitter spouse bitterly refuse the thought that she might be bitter. I've listened to self-righteous men and women self-righteously declare that they're not self-righteous. I've heard selfish people selfishly demand that they're not viewed as selfish. In each instance, they would listen to what I said and then lay out for me the evidence that my assessment was wrong. It was just not that they were refusing to look at themselves. It was that when they looked at themselves, they simply didn't see what I saw. You see, they were delusional because sin blinds us, and when you're in darkness, it's hard to see a clear image of yourself. But Jesus is saying to us that we are in the dark and that he is the light. And it's a scary thing when the light shows up. I remember when Kim and I, early on in our marriage, we had somebody salesman want to sell us a vacuum cleaner, and it was one of these ones that works out of water and the person wanted to do a demonstration. So I vacuumed the house really good because I wanted to prove to this person that we are not in need of a vacuum cleaner. So the person came over with his vacuum cleaner, proceeded with their demonstration, and then they said, uh, this house is full of dust. And I'm thinking, I just vacuumed. I mean, so this person pops out a 400-watt light bulb, bonk, and then she proceeded to pound on the pillows. In, in, in which I hadn't vacuumed. And when she, boom, 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 and, she, and all of a sudden, the 400-watt light bulb, it was like, all you could see was like, oh, my word. I mean, what am I breathing? I mean, there's just, dust is everywhere. When the light shows up, you're pretty content when it's just a 40-watt bulb and things look pretty good. But when God shows up, it's the light comes on and the light exposes the darkness. The Bible says things that we, says we are being delivered when he saves us from a dominion of darkness. And he brings us into his glorious light. The Bible describes the works that we do as deeds of darkness. And as we do them, we become more darkened in our understanding. And actually, we become more hardened and greedy for more sin. And even some of that, I mean, 
you were kind of laying out in your testimony. You know, as you started to give yourself over to this, you, you start going down trails that are no good. And the Bible says if we hate our brother, we're in the darkness, and we walk in the darkness. If we don't forgive our brother, we're in the darkness. And, we, and he says, First John just says, he walks in the darkness, doesn't know where he's going because darkness has blinded his eyes. And so here comes Jesus as the light of the world, and here's the prophecies that we read every Christmas about light dawning. And we sing, with the dawn of redeeming grace, that will be like the culmination verse of all of Christmas on Christmas Eve when we all have our candles and they're lit all around the sanctuary, and we will sing, with the dawn of redeeming grace. We're talking about Jesus. Well, John the Baptist... His ministry was prophesied in Luke 1 by Zacharias. An angel came to him and prophesied and said, About John the Baptist, you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give the light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace, just as the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire guided them. And where the pillar moved, guess what they did? They followed it. They were led by it. So Jesus purposely uses the word, whoever follows me, just like you follow the pillar. And here John the Baptist is now going to guide our feet into the way of peace by showing us Jesus. Then Simeon shows up at the temple, right? In Luke 2, he's the one who's been waiting and waiting. And he took Jesus in his arms and he blessed God and he said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the nations, to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. The gospel has come. It's Jesus. And this gospel is what we need. We're told in 2 Corinthians 4 that if our eyes are, are veiled, it's because the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But God said, let light, out of, let light shine out of darkness, just as he did at creation. He said, let light shine out of darkness into our hearts, so that he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Just as creation is a miracle of God speaking into darkness, when somebody becomes a Christian, God's speaking into the darkness of our hearts, and he's saying, let there be light. Let him see Jesus. Boom, lights come on, regeneration. Speaks into creation, let the lights come on, boom, creation. The other is a recreation. And we are delivered from darkness into light. Paul's ministry, he's called, and we, he's called to rise. Stand on your feet. Feet. I have appeared to you for this purpose. This is Acts 26. He says, your ministry is going to be deliver you from your people and from Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by me, by faith in me. You see, those who are the people of God are the ones that receive and they respond. They see their need, they humble themselves. And the Bible just says that we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, 
people who proclaim the excellencies, the greatness of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And I appreciate that you did that this morning, Greg. You were going to give God the glory that once you were not a people, now you are the people of God, and that you wanted to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. How about you, dear friends, this morning? Have you given your life to Jesus? You see, this whole thing comes down to a condition. The condition is the last part of the verse. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. There's a condition. You have to follow. Everybody's got to serve somebody, as Bob Dylan used to say. There was a pastor in the PCA years ago, and he spoke at our Presbytery retreat, and he, he also had a drug addiction. And for him, what it was, I'm pretty sure it was he had kidney stones, and he got hooked on Oxycontin. And he started to take these meds, and he had all these doctors in his church, and he started getting the different doctors to give him prescriptions over time. But at first, he just took one day because he was having such a difficult day. And he knew when he took it, he kind of crossed the threshold. But as he got hooked, he was still doing his stuff. He was still preaching in the church, doing his thing. And one day he was at this event. It was like a, you know, it wasn't a Christian event, it wasn't in the church, some community event. And a guy walked up to him. You'll, you'll like this, Greg. <clears throat> a guy walked up to him and said, who's your God? And he told us this story at a Presbyterian retreat. And he said, my, my God is Jesus Christ. And the guy looked at him and said, no, he's not. Your God is drugs. And the guy knew that you're using, and he could tell. And he was very convicted by that. And I'm asking you this morning, not what is your professed God, but what is your possessed God? What possesses you? Who do you really follow? And maybe you've been playing around with God. And maybe you've just been tampering with him, and maybe he's awakening you. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, it's always shocking to meet life where we thought we were alone. Look out, we cry. It's alive. And he says, this is the point where many draw back. He said, we can say an impersonal God, well and good, a subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our own heads, better still. A formless life force surging through us, a vast power which we can tap, best of all. But God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at an infinite speed, the hunter, the king, husband, that's quite another matter. There comes a moment when the children who've been playing at burglars hush suddenly. Was that a real footstep in the hall? There comes a moment when people who've been dabbling in religion suddenly draw back, supposing we really found him. We never meant it to come to that. We're still supposing he's found us. Has he found you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the light of the world. Please turn on the lights in our hearts. Cast out the darkness. Cast out sin. We ask that you would forgive our sins and cover our shame with your light. Lord, we recognize you're the only one who can save us from ourselves and our sin. And so, Lord, we come running to your arms this day. Thank you that you came to this world even as a baby, lived a whole perfect life, and fulfilled all the law 
for us. You paid for all the sins for us. Lord, you were crushed and the darkness prevailed over the land for three hours. We thank you that you took our darkness for us, took our hell, took the weeping and gnashing of teeth. We thank you that the law has been fulfilled and been satisfied. One has suffered for us and that we get the blessing because you took the curse. And so, Lord, open our eyes and fill us with contentment, gratitude, faith, hope, and love. We ask in your name. Amen.